0: Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about the classical attributes of God, the negative attributes of God. And It's important to keep in mind that when we're talking about negative attributes, we're not necessarily talking about attributes which are evil or attributes which are wrong or attributes which portray God in a negative light or a bad light. These are called negative attributes. These are attributes that limit God or set Him apart from the physical world. These are transcendent attributes. Usually these are an all or none type of attribute. God is omniscient. There's nothing that God does not know. God is omnipotent. There's nothing that God cannot do. God is immutable. There's nothing that could change God. There's no movement in God. And this is a technical term, negative attribute. Negative attribute just means these attributes which cannot be described and are subject to these universal truths so negative attribute classical attribute they could be used interchangeably but it's a very important concept that these are the attributes which set God apart from the universe so in his book what does God know and when does he know it Michael Erickson posits that open theists pretty much draw a caricature of classical theists when open theists say that the classical theists is very reliant on Greek philosophy, and we're going to kind of try to dissect this idea and try to figure out what classical theism believes, and how these attributes, these negative attributes, how they interlink together, and how one affects another. So in order to do this study, we're going to be looking at the book Creating God in the Image of Man, The New Open View of God, Neotheism's Dangerous Drift. And this is by Norman Geisler, and he tries to coin the term neotheism, and he wants this applied to open theists instead of open theism, because he's afraid that the term open theism will give open theism a better light than he believes it needs, and he he wants to call it neotheism in order to try to say, this is this new, dangerous doctrine that we all need to be afraid of. But this book is interesting, because this book goes through the various negative attributes of God, and it... It's called creating God in the image of man, but God created man in his image, and he never addresses that fact, the fact that the Bible actually says that God created man in his image. So in this book called Creating God in the Image of Man, we never do get told by Norman Geisler how man was created in God's image. Yeah, that's a biblical concept. Instead, we are treated to a host of these negative attributes. The first attribute that Norman Geisler starts with is God's A-City, and he kind of alludes to Exodus 3.14, and God in Exodus 3.14 says, I am who I am. Now, biblical scholarship, Jewish scholarship, take that I am who I am, and they understand that Yahweh is talking to Moses, and Yahweh is saying, I will be whoever I want to be, And here is a clip from Rabbi Sachs, one of the most prominent rabbis in all of England, and he's saying exactly that. And it is not until the opening of Shemot that we really get it between the eyes. Because when Moshe Rabbeinu asks God, who are you? He says, I won't bore you because I've written It's at least in two of my books, the last two, uh, Great Partnership and the Future Tense, how every single non-Jewish translation of those three words is wrong. And only when they remembered to read the Mepharshim, the Jewish understanding, they they get it right. Eh, Ehyeh asher ehyeh does not mean I am that I am. It means I will be what I will be. Or to put it, paraphrase it, I will be what I choose to be. So here you have a rabbi, a Jewish scholar, and you have plenty of other scholars as well that talk about this passage and how this is really God's introduction to Moses as being the God of history, a God that interacts, a God that saves, and a God that will not be pinned down by stereotypes. And people like Geisler, they come in and they hijack this passage and they try to make it about a city. And you get almost a sense of that in the Greek Septuagint, which translates this verse, I am the one. And the one in Platonic philosophy, in the philosophy of Plato and his intellectual successors, they take this one as this absolute being. And the Septuagint translators, they were kind of keen on this idea, but we have an understanding from the Dead Sea Scrolls that this was not the original translation of the original Hebrew. Instead, they retained older versions, versions of I am who I am, not I am the one, I am this platonic concept, no. Instead, they kept the translation that God is who he wishes to be. So Geisler takes this verse, I am who I am, and he wants to make it about Greek concepts. He wants to make it about acity. And acity is just the idea that there's no potentiality in God. God is pure actuality. And from this idea that God is pure actuality, all these other attributes flow. Potentiality means subject to change, subject to, you know, being something other than what you are. And in this idea that God is pure actuality, that's how they say that God is always exist, because God has no propensity not to exist. There's no such universe in which God is not there. So here is Norman Geisler. This is a direct quote from the book, and you can kind of get an idea of how he thinks. God is pure actuality, with no potentiality in his being whatsoever. That is, God has no possibility of not existing. Whatever has potentiality, potency, needs to be actualized or affected by another. And since God is the ultimate cause, there is nothing beyond him to actualize any potential he may have. Nor can God actualize his own potential to exist, since this would mean he caused his own existence But a self-caused being is impossible since it cannot create itself. Something has to exist before it can do anything. Even God cannot lift himself into being by his own ontological bootstraps. Thus God must be pure actuality in his being. So we take a look at this quote by Norman Geisler and we kind of get where he's coming from. God has always existed and God has only existed always because God is this pure essence, this this unchangeable essence. Yeah, you kind of see that acity is already bleeding into the concept of immutability, but it really bleeds into Norman Geisler's next attribute, and that is one of simplicity. Simplicity is linked to acity because simplicity states that God has no parts. There's no moving parts, whereas God can be anything other than what he is. Because if you remember from the acity, God has no potentiality to exist in a different form than what he is, and anything with parts has a propensity to be different. Thus, God is purely simple. So here's what Norman Geisler writes. He says, Since God is not composed in his being, but is pure existence or pure actuality with no potentiality, it follows that he is simple and indivisible. A being that by nature is not composed cannot decompose, one that has no parts cannot be torn apart; hence God is absolute simplicity with no possibility of being divided. He is literally indivisible. Already, Christians should start to take note that these concepts of indivisibility and simplicity they kind of violate the idea of the Trinity or Jewish dualistic thoughts and the Yahweh Godhead. It's it's just not biblical theology. This is coming from the pages of Plato and his disciple Plotinus. Plotinus writes a lot about simplicity, a lot about immutability and acity and pure existence, but we don't so much get that in the Bible as we do the Greek philosophers. We also take note how Norman Geisler starts with acity, but then simplicity is a natural complement to acity. Acity is pure actuality. Simplicity just ensures that no change is possible. Without simplicity, you cannot have acity, and without acity, you cannot have simplicity. That means if acity is false, then simplicity is false. If simplicity is false, then acity is false. And this is important because as we study these Greek attributes, these are all interlinked in the same way, whereas if one falls, they all fall. So Norman Geisler moves on from simplicity to God's necessity, or he also labels it God's non-contingency. And here's what he writes. He writes, God is by nature an absolute necessary being. If he exists, he must exist. He cannot not exist. So in the Bible, we get this idea that God is everlasting, that God will never die, and God will live forever. But the Bible never really talks about if God can or cannot exist exist, or if God can or cannot not exist. The Bible just doesn't talk like this. But you see this a lot in the pages of the Platonists, because they care a lot about these metaphysical notions of of what, what God's substance is, what is his what actual divine being is made up of. And so they come up with these ideas that God cannot do things. So if the Bible calls God the unlying God, or the God who does not lie, they will take these concepts and they'll flip them on the head and say, this is a God who cannot lie. If God ever lied, his divine being would fall apart and he'd violate his internal substance. Some weird metaphysical concepts like that, because what they care about is not necessarily the text. They care about meta-divine essence. The Bible's not about meta-divine essence. So Norman Geisler cares about God's non-contingency, and God's non-contingency, that's not divisible from God's simplicity and acity. All three of these things are linked. God, God is pure actuality. God it cannot have potentiality. Therefore, God is absolutely simple because he can't change. He doesn't have parts. And God must exist because that's part of being pure actuality. If people have been listening carefully all of these concepts they tie all together into one concept god's immutability and this is very important in calvinist circles that god cannot change and often this uh, adjective this this attribute is played around with calvinists so that they could try to make it biblical but really immutability stems from these other ideas god's pure actuality god's simplicity God just just can't change. The, the Platonistic idea is that if there's any change in God that would undo the Godhead, he wouldn't be pure actuality, he wouldn't be pure simplicity, and, and God would have potentiality. That means God doesn't have to exist. So back to Erickson's book, What Does God Know and When Does He Know It? Erickson argues that not all Calvinists take immutability in the same sense. He says some Calvinists redefine it. Does redefining it work? No, it crumbles the system, because if God has some potentiality in any aspect of his nature, then God's not immutable anymore. Yeah, you could say that there are certain things about God that doesn't change, his morality, stuff like that, but that doesn't do what this word immutability was designed to do. So you might want to change your word if that's the case, just call it God's steadfastness. You know, something like that. That that's a more biblical concept, a biblical term. When you start talking about immutability, it all revolves around this acity and simplicity and pure actuality. It's all about not being able to change. So redefining the word it doesn't help their system and their system crumbles because it's based on these interwoven aspects that, that those aspects can't change without the entire system crumbling. So here's what Geisler writes about immutability, and he actually quotes Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, who was a Christian theologian who argued for a lot of these Platonistic concepts. Geisler writes, In his epic Summa Theologica, Aquinas asks whether God is altogether immutable. He offers three basic arguments in favor of God's unchangeability. The first argument is based on the fact that God is pure actuality, I amness has no potentiality, For everything that changes has potentiality, but there can be no potentiality. In God, he is pure actuality. It follows, therefore, that God cannot change. Since God is actuality, as such, with no potentiality, we must conclude that he cannot change. For whatever changes must have the potential to change. But as pure actuality, God has no potential to change. Therefore, God cannot change. Geisler continues, The second argument for God's immutability follows from his simplicity. Everything that changes is composed of what changes and what does not change, but there can be no composition in God. He is an absolutely simple being. Hence, God cannot change. I'm going to skip forward a little bit. The third argument for God's unchangeability argues from his absolute perfection. Briefly put, whatever changes acquires something new. But God cannot acquire anything new. Since he is absolutely perfect, he cannot be better. Therefore, God cannot change. So we notice a couple things in Geisler's reasoning. Number one, immutability is definitely tied to God's actuality, God's pure existence, God's acity, and God's simplicity. Another thing we notice in his argument number three is he starts talking about perfect being philosophy. And perfect being philosophy was started by Plato, maybe even before Plato. But Plato really popularizes this in his The Republic. In the Republic, Plato writes that God is absolutely perfect. And an absolutely perfect being, if that being changed, could they can only change for the worse, because they can't change for the better. So any change would be a change for the worse, and they wouldn't actually be a perfect being. Therefore, any perfect being cannot change, because any change would be a change away from perfection. And literally, literally, pastors use this line of reasoning in sermons. And it's astounding, because that's coming straight from the pages of Plato, and it's not found in the Bible, this perfect being theology, in which God is supposed to be the most perfect being imaginable to the comprehension, and it then involves all these negative attributes to make God who he is. No, instead the God of the Bible is perfect, and by perfect it means he's righteous. God is righteous, God is just, but God is not pure actuality. God's always interacting and changing and doing things. God has a lot of potentiality, and we see that in how God acts and responds to man. But Norman Geisler does not quote the Bible on these things. The only quote we got from him is that Exodus 3.14 quote, in which God says, I am who I am, and from that one quote, he's trying to build This basic theology that has nothing to do with the quote. And as we've shown, that quote means quite the opposite of what Norman Geisler would like. So from immutability, Norman Geisler talks about impassibility. And impassibility is also a term that the Calvinists wrestle with. Because it is so foreign to the concept of the Bible that they have to go through great lengths to try to endorse impassibility and the Bible at the same time. But impassibility, Norman Geisler writes... God is without passion, for passion implies desire for what one does not have. But God, as an absolutely perfect being, has everything. He lacks nothing, for in order to lack something, he would need to have potentiality. Notice that word again, potentiality. He would need to have potentiality to possess it. But God is pure actuality, as we have said, with no potentiality whatsoever. Therefore, God has no passion for anything. He is completely and infinitely perfect in himself. So a lot of Calvinists, they try to disown impassibility. They'll try to redefine it. They'll say, yeah, God doesn't just feel emotions like we do. Instead, God is the static goal, and as we move away from him, it's not God that's changing, nor his disposition towards man. But the farther we go into sin, that level of distanceness is inherent in how the whole system operates. So if we see it sin a bunch, God is not changing to become sad, but our changes are the difference between where God was and where we are. And this is not like a classical understanding of impassibility. And this just doesn't work with what impassibility is designed to do as an attribute. The attribute is designed to get rid of potentiality and potentiality exists anytime God is in relation to something else these attributes these negative attributes are meant to take God out of the equation so that God cannot be compared to mankind because remember absolute simplicity demands that there's no moving parts in the Godhead so if God can be in relation to one thing or another then there's potentiality and with potentiality all those other attributes they fall apart immutability impassibility simplicity acity they all just don't work and god can be related to other things impassibility is in stark stark contrast to the bible you have god and god reacts in various ways when mankind sins sometimes the reactions in anger sometimes the reaction is in sadness, sometimes God punishes, sometimes God shows forgiveness, sometimes God shows mercy for his own sake. This is not a moving goalpost where God is static and everyone's moving around him. This is God trying out various things in various circumstances and sometimes the circumstances are the same or sometimes they're not. Sometimes man sins and God just chooses to forget mankind's sin because of how man has affected god and so the bible's all about this the bible describes god's state of being throughout the idea that impassibility is part of the bible it's definite platonism that's being incorporated into the bible as not at all the story of the bible as not at all the story of god god who desires our worship who desires a singing who desires mercy who desires justice this god has potentiality This God has wants, this God has desires, this God has preferences. There's not this immutability that you see in the Platonistic system, whereas God has everything he needs. No, God is a relational God in the Bible and needs communion with man. And when man doesn't give that to God, it hurts God on an emotional level. This is extreme passability. So from all these attributes, from these attributes of immutability and pure actuality and simplicity, and immutability, we get the idea that God is timeless. God is outside of time. And Norman Geisler talks about this in his book, and he writes, According to classical theists, God is not temporal. God is beyond time. Aquinas offers several arguments in support of this conclusion. One argument goes like this. Whatever exists in time can be computed according to its befores and afters. However, A changeless being has no befores and afters. It is always the same. Consequently, God must be timeless. And we read about this timelessness. If you pull up Augustine's Confessions, in chapter 11 he talks about how a changeless God is able to interact in time. And he takes the example of Jesus' baptism. And he says, you know, when God said, this is my beloved son, you know, and he's coming down on a dove, he says those words were not actually spoken by God. They can't be spoken of God because God is immutable. Instead, there was a pre-programmed creature, like a parrot, which uttered those words on behalf of God. So this is with what dedication Augustine showed these platonic concepts that God is timeless and immutable. So timelessness is not a biblical concept at all. We get nowhere in the Bible that talks like this. We get everywhere in the Bible where it talks about befores and afters. God says, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky, and that rainbow is going to remind me of the flood to never again destroy the world. So God's saying something in the future is going to remind me of the past. In the entire Bible, it talks like this, whereas God is telling people what's going to kind of come in the future, and then he's telling them the past as if the past has gone. There's no timeless aspect. There's no gods outside of time and immutable Nothing like that, and even Roger Olson—he's—he's he's a pretty good theologian. He's not an open theist, but he understands, and, he's, and he writes an article that talks about unwarranted theological speculation and timelessness. Is it because the Bible it just does not support timelessness as a concept in how the Bible's written in any way whatsoever? So here's where Geisler moves to more interesting theology, interesting in how he tries to defend his concept of God and how God relates to the world. Remember that those attributes that we talked about, that God is pure actuality, God is pure simplicity, God is immutable. You know, when God is put in relations to something, in relation to the world, then those attributes, they kind of fall apart. And so Geisler needs some sort of mechanism, whereas God can relate to the world, but still not relate to the world. Geisler writes, For it would appear that if the changing world is related to God, then God must somehow be tainted by his association with it. Aquinas anticipated this kind of objection and argued that there is a real relationship between the unchanging world and the unchanging God. I think he meant changing world there. He observed that there are three kinds of relations, one where both terms are are ideas, uh, the same is the same of itself, another where both terms are real, an example, a small thing compared to a large thing, and one where one is real and the other is an idea, example, on the right side. Now, since creatures are truly dependent on God, but God is not truly dependent on them, they are related as real to an idea. That is, God knows about the relationship of the dependence, but he does not have it. Thus, when there is a change in the creature, there is no change in God. Just as when man changes his position from one side of the pillar to the other, The pillar does not change, only the man changes in relation to the pillar, so while the relationship between God and creatures is real, God in no sense is dependent on that relationship. So this is the type of theology that Geisler does in order to try to rectify the God of Platonism with the God of the Bible. He needs some sort of mechanism where a God of pure actuality, a God of pure immutability, can interact and kind of do the things in the Bible that the Bible describes God as doing. And so he invents this mechanism whereas God has some sort of relationship to the world, but the relationship's not a real relationship because it involves no positional change. And here and only here is where Geisler introduces the idea of omniscience, that God knows all things perfectly. And Geisler has a bunch of different categories that he tries to categorize as God's knowledge. God knows himself simply. God knows himself perfectly. God's knowledge is identical to his essence. God knows evil only indirectly. God knows changing things. God knows many things. God knows all things perfectly. God knows singular things. God knows intuitively. God knows the future perfectly and completely. You see all these weird categories that he tries to categorize as God's knowledge? God is not an, a person in Norman Geisler's theology. God cannot choose what to do and choose what to know, and God doesn't have individual motivations, and God doesn't have individual personality which he could actually do and say and think and innovate. God's this static being, and this static being that's, not in relation to mankind in any ways whatsoever because if god was in relation to man it would violate his internal essence and from this idea this platonic idea all these other other attributes flow immutability omniscience even omnipresence comes from that idea when they say god is either in all spaces imaginable or as god is transcendent of any space these ideas are flowing from this idea of immutability And if one of these goes down, if God's omniscience goes down, if God's immutability goes down, if God's timelessness goes down, then the whole house of cards, the whole house of cards collapses. So looking back at the quote by Erickson in his book where he says that open theists make a caricature of classical theism, I don't believe that's true. We got Norman Geisler, a well-respected theologian, and he's quoting you know Thomas Aquinas and and this 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 Greek philosophy it goes way back and all of the church fathers they bought into this type of thinking and this type of theology and you see Augustine even how he writes his books it's always in light of these Platonistic attributes and Augustine admits he says you know before I read the Bible in light of Platonism I thought it was absurd there's a bunch of silly stories I thought how can these things be true But then I decided to look at it with the spiritual light, and interpret it in light of Platonism, and only then could I accept the Bible for what it was. So one thing I really need to touch on real fast is the idea of omnipotence, that God has all power and God can do anything. That is not actually a Platonic concept. In the idea of Plotinus, God was this absolutely simple, pure actuality being. And if someone is omnipotent, if they have all power, that means they do stuff. And they, they have power to actualize things. And that kind of violates the idea that God is pure actuality. So in Plotinus's system, the ultimate God, the One, he was not omnipotent. But he spawns a lesser God. And this God actually does have all power. See, the, the pure God, the true God, the God that that's above space and time and this ethereal eternal now that has no potentiality to create or do anything and it's these lesser gods that spawn from that that are able to affect the world and and do powerful things and you see in Gnosticism the Gnostics really picked up on this idea and one of the Gnostics, the Marcionites they claimed that the God of the Old Testament was one of these lesser gods that spawned from the true God and they said all these stories in the Bible You know, they're not like false, but the God who did it was not the true God. It was an evil lesser God that spawned from the one true God. And when Calvinists take books of the Old Testament and they try to make it uh, mythological and they try to say, well, that's just trying to communicate God's positional change and God's not really like that. God's, God's immutable and, you know, above time. They're really adopting these Gnostic concepts, whereas the Old Testament has to be discounted in order to accept A better, more transcendent God, the God of the Platonists. So, but in relation to God's almightiness, God's powerfulness, uh, God's omnipotence, if God can do something, God is not the God of the Platonists. God is not this pure actuality. God is not this immutability. God is not this pure simplicity. God's able to act. God's able to move things. God's able to relate. And God is the God of the Bible. So, I hope today everyone learned about the Platonic attributes, the classical attributes, the negative attributes of God, and kind of get a good understanding of what's generating these attributes, what these attributes are designed to do, and what's the reasoning behind how these attributes work. And with that understanding, we could understand that Calvinism is built on a house of cards. These attributes are internally consistent, and despite what Erickson says, the open theists are not building a caricature of modern classical theists if you'd like to comment on today's podcast you could do so on the god is open webpage, or you could go to the companion site the facebook god is open group and start a thread there we'd be happy to talk to you thanks for listening